This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good evening. My name is Thomas Cordwell and welcome to Plato's Cave here on 102.7 FM, 3RRR. I'll be doing tonight's show by myself as it's dedicated to an interview I recorded last week with filmmaker Penelope Spheris, who made the three films in the music documentary series The Decline of Western Civilization," which are all currently screening at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image and have recently been restored for their release on DVD and Blu-ray by Spheris and her daughter Anna Fox. Now, Spheris has an eclectic filmmaking career, having made independent documentaries and dramas, as well as big studio family films and comedies, including the original Wayne's World. The first decline of Western civilization was shot in 1979 and released at the start of 1981 and was her feature film debut with its raw and often confronting portrayal of the Los Angeles punk scene at the time. I wanted to first talk to you about your background as a filmmaker prior to Decline, as you had produced Albert Brooks's short films for Saturday Night Live, as well as his first feature film, Real Life, as well as directing several of your own short films in the 1960s. They were often very unconventional. You were experimenting with the mockumentary form, you were doing films with uh, serious queer and transgender themes. How do you see these earlier films fitting in with your broader filmography? Well, but they just actually had a screening of the entire uh, program of my short films recently at the Hammer Museum here in Los Angeles, and I watched them. And my comment was, if I were to see those and not know who did them, I would think the person was crazy. (laughs) Because all these different, you're right, it was so many different kinds of subject matter. You know, I was fascinated back then with the transgender friends that I had. So I put them in my movies. I put my family members naked in my movies. I mean, I did some crazy things back then. And yes, the mockumentary style. And, um... I don't know. I mean, I, I just, when I discovered, uh, you know, filmmaking, I guess you could say, when I discovered that in the, in the late 60s, I felt like I had, you know, found um, religion, you know? Yeah, I, I, I know that feeling very well. So how, your experience as an emerging and low-budget filmmaker, how did that inform your decision to then make the decline of Western civilization? Well, I actually, I was producing with Albert, as you mentioned, that, that real life film. And while working with him, I realized, because back then, uh, Thomas, you didn't, as a woman, it would be ridiculous if you would to say that you wanted to be a film director. People would laugh at you. So I was an editor and then I, you know, I, I, I worked with Albert as a producer. And while I was working with Albert, um, I had to do so many things that were producerly and didn't suit my personality at all and um it was like going back and getting the points back from the girlfriend that he just broke up with that was in the movie things like that (laughs) and um i know and um so i decided you know back then okay well then if I, I, I don't have to teach other people how to make movies because Lauren Michaels asked me to teach Albert to, uh, to, to, to be a director, and I did that. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm just going to go out on a limb here and try directing my, uh, you know, my own movies. And that's when I did The Decline, and it was um, 
1979, I started shooting it, and we released it in uh, 1980, yeah. Oh, 1980. So, so what attracted you to the punk scene? And I believe this was the first major documentation of that scene. In Los Angeles, yes. I think uh, Don Letts in New York was shooting um, the, the scene in, so, in the Julian Temple in London and doing a great job of it. But I think I was either the only one or one of the few that were shooting here in L.A. Because not everybody had a camera back then, mind you. You know, you had to um, – it was unusual that that, that that sort of thing was, was being filmed. Uh, and what drew me to it, to answer your question, was the fact that I think I related to – the chaos of the punk rock scene. I'd never seen anything like it. I'd always been a music fan and been to concerts since I was like 12 years old and um, loved music so much, but I'd never seen anything like uh, the punk movement. And I identified with it. And it was total chaos because I was raised in total chaos. My family was nuts. And <laughs> I said, love them, but they're crazy. Um, and uh, yeah, I think just I wanted to uh, I wanted to document it because I felt like there was some historical importance there, and as it turns out, I think there 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 has been some. Absolutely, know. this film just captures a moment in time that I've never seen captured quite like that before. Considering your background, did the various punk musicians and fans therefore see you as a kindred spirit? Did that help you get access to them? Because this was made at the time when people weren't all wandering around with cameras shooting everything, so you must have stood out at these concerts. Well, the thing is, I was friends with most of the people in the movie before I made the movie, uh -huh. so... Um, I started shooting and everybody knew me already and it was okay that I was shooting, you know. Uh, I mean, I didn't know absolutely everybody in the movie, like Eugene, for example, the, the kid that opens the movie. He was 14 at the time. Um, still my friend today, mind you, and he's 50. I just sent him a birthday present. Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, I didn't know Eugene, uh, but... There were a few people I didn't know, but for the most part, I just made a movie about my friends. And mm. was, there ever, was there ever any danger of getting hurt, or did you get hurt? Because you really do feel like you're in some of those, you know, in, in those crowd scenes. And, you know, the, 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 the dancing is violent. Yes, and it, that was one attraction uh, for me, is that it was uh, a little scary. You know, I mean, I was raised in a family of four kids and I had seven stepfathers and, you know, there were drunken brawls in my household all the time. So it was like, I was, I was fully at home when I walked into a punk rock club <laughs> and I wasn't afraid. Yep. And actually I was, uh, invigorated by it. And, um, and I wanted the film to look like how it felt in those clubs and, and cause it did feel very, um, dangerous you know well look as a really interesting contrast to that you choose to interview so many of the band members in very domestic settings why did you do that let me are for the first decline uh yes well it, it, to a degree in the second one as well although they said that, that some of the band members seem more in control of their image in the second one but in this in this first one you know you've got people just making breakfast or, or just hanging out where they're where they're living at the moment ah I see what you're asking. Sure. Mm. Uh, well, the fact of the matter is I wanted people to feel comfortable sure. uh, when I was interviewing because, you know, it, right now, today, your little iPhone, your little high-def iPhone is not a very intrusive piece of equipment. However, back in the day, 
Um, and I always shot one camera and Steve Conant on, on the decline shot the other camera. Uh, they were pretty large chunks of uh, machinery that you were shoving in people's faces. So, so it could be intimidating. And I wanted Darby, uh, who was cooking breakfast there to, to be, uh, comfortable. As a matter of fact, I called him and I said, I said, I want to, uh, film you. Where, where, where could I film you? He goes, well, I'm at my apartment right now. And I said, fine. And he said, would you bring some breakfast? We're hungry. And, and so I said, yes, if you'll cook it. So, um, that's how that happened. One interesting issue that I found watching these films again recently is in some of these interviews, many of the band members and some of the punk fans, there are moments where they, you know, they say things which are really openly misogynistic, racist, homophobic. Why was it important for you to leave those moments in the film? Because that's the way people talked and thought back then. Yeah. Okay. That, that was the reality. And uh, an interesting side note is that when my daughter, Anna Fox, convinced me to actually put these uh, DVDs together after all these, you know, decades, um, there were elements that she unearthed. Uh, she was like an archaeologist. She kept going into the to the vault, pulling stuff out and trying to find some way to play back uh an, an unknown format, you know, but there were, there were things, interviews and, and pieces that she found that were even worse than what's in the film with regard to various kinds of discrimination. And she asked me, mom, do you think these should, should be included in the extras? And I said, of course I do, because that's the way people spoke back then. And my daughter, who's extremely cool said, well, too bad. I'm not going to do it because that's not the way these people talk today. That's interesting because the film very much comes across as an ob observation film that you're, you're not trying to craft the image of, of, of this scene. And I think it's really important that we, we get the light and the dark. Um, but just on a personal point of view, I was just curious to know that given the sort of counterculture and anti-authority defiance of punk, you know, there's a scene in the film where someone compares punk to folk music in terms of its background in, in being protest music. Were you ever personally disappointed or, or even a little bit betrayed of some of the violence and prejudice that these people expressed you know back in the day i understand what you're, you're asking but back in the day uh i think the reason punk came about was because the intention was to try and tear down tradition mm. it was it was time for a change here and you know disco was ruling the radio waves and um you know, the politics were so conservative and it was just really time to try and tear down every rule. They started with music, you know, uh, there were no more love songs. There were no more guitar solos. Uh, there was no more being nice and uh, flirty with the audience. They were insulting the audience, you know, they they. They did everything to break the rules, and I think w what happened was there was there were things that were that were politically incorrect to the nth degree, you know, and that was part of that um, trend toward trying to just tear down tradition. Uh, these people are very different today. That's one reason why my daughter didn't want to keep um, uh, those uh, those racist or sexist or gender, you know. Mm. Uh, incorrect uh, uh, thoughts in there and and uh, those people are very different today you know i mean i heard a story where where leaving from fear was at a concert and the guy was 
in the audience was doing the Nazi salute and at least stopped playing and had the guy ejected from the club, you know. And that's not the same guy as that was in my movie. You know? <laughs> no. he, I mean, but his performance is amazing. I mean, that, that, that's a hell of a finale to your film, that performance by, by Fear, where they're just so baiting the audience for a response and, and they get that response. Yeah, yeah. And the energy, I think, you know, I look at that and, and I know Lee today and he's still very energetic, but that kind of energy, you know, I, and people, young people, whoever is listening, it, please enjoy that energy because <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't last forever. The second film, The Decline of Western Civilization, Part Two, The Metal Years, come, which came out in the late eighties. Uh, this is a focus on, on heavy metal, and it, it feels like a much more polished and grander film. And I was curious to know if that was a deliberate strategy, so that the film style matched matched the sort of grandiose music genre or is it just is it just a case that you had more resources for that second film a little bit of both but mostly the resources okay (laughs) well it works out perfectly because it feels like the film style of all three films suits the subject matter so well yeah i mean i i probably would have made the decline too more about um like bands more like uh, megadeth i had to fight hard to get them in the movie because at the time everybody that was involved with the film and writing the checks really wanted to have those glam bands in there. And I, I love those guys, but I, I, that's not my personal choice for music, you know, personal first choice, I should say, you know. Well, there's some really interesting contrasts in the second film because you've got people like Megadeth who are quite respected and a serious band and, and also the guys from Aerosmith and, and really, really good articulate interviews with people like uh, Lemmy and, and, and Ozzy. And you've got that, but in contrast to some of the younger guys, the sort of poison and, yeah, the sort of the hair metal guys, come close to unintentional self-parody. And I was, I, was <laughs> one, I mean, were you aware I, of that tension at the time? No, I mean, I, I actually just let it fall off the truck is the way I call it, you know. Yep. It, it just kind of fell off the truck as we were driving by, and that's the way it was. I mean, when I, I laugh because I think of Cece uh, trying to describe himself as an accountant and not being able to get numbers straight. It was um, <laughs> just, just very fortunate uh, that we were able to get those little uh, clips like that, you know. And they are. They're, they're hilarious. The Poison guys. I mean, here's the thing. All those guys are great musicians, you know. Without a and, doubt, yes. Yeah, and I think you don't make it if you're not a great musician, you know, unless you've got some jive producer that's faking it, you know. But back in the day, those people were really good musicians, and they deserved whatever success that they had, you know. And I don't know. I mean, the the the, the bands that I interviewed that were the up-and-coming bands, because that is the nature of the decline premise, you know. I, I, I feature the up-and-coming bands to try and help them. Um you know, a lot of them didn't make it. I, I really must say, uh, and 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 as much as they wanted to, it was it was kind of sad. That was sad watching that film uh, again recently. All those people saying, "I'm definitely going to make it, and it's going to happen for me." And and they're so sincere, and and they're working so hard. And but we know today that they didn't. A lot of these a lot of these people kind of just vanished without a trace in terms of their music career. I think there was some sort of uh, concept in the zeitgeist which was. If I believe it, it will happen. Yeah. And that that that's not not true. <laughs> no, it's not. You know? Yeah, that's one of the big, one of the big myths, isn't it? Right. Yeah. I mean, just because you believe it doesn't mean it's going to happen. And I think we had to, as a um, as, you know, that generation had to go through the experience to to uh, learn that. You know.
the heavy metal scene is so distinct from the punk scene, and, and there are some really lovely interviews that are very... I was wondering how staged some of those interviews were in terms of the guys being surrounded by the girls in the spa bath or on bed with the, the, the lingerie models. Um, were they the band's decision, or is that something that you, you set up? You know, for the most part, with regard to the, uh, the larger names, uh, the established stars, I asked them where they wanted to be filmed. I asked Paul Stanley of KISS, how, where do you want to be filmed? And he said, well, that's easy. I want to be filmed in a, in a, in a bed with a bunch of girls in it. So I <laughs> said, okay. And um, actually, the day that we shot that, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a low budget movie and we really couldn't afford, you know, the supermodels to be there. So I, I had some girls there. And when he came in, he said, I'm so sorry, Penelope. These girls are not beautiful enough. And I said, well, what are we going to do? And he said, hold on. And he gets on the phone and he calls the Playboy Mansion. And and some Playboy bunny girls came down. So that's where they came from. And I said to Gene Simmons, where do you want to be filmed? And he said, um, well, I just don't want to do anything tacky. Uh, and I said, okay, well, then where do you want to be filmed? And he said, how about trashy lingerie? I said, fine, Gene, we won't do anything tacky. Uh, so, I mean, you know, and then for the other ones, like Chris Holmes, uh, it was just a matter of practical location. That's the, the swimming pool of the, of the producer. Oh, I you see. Know? Yeah, yeah. Well, again, I think you, you, sort of, you capture the chauvinism of, of that scene in a fairly unjudgmental, observational way that lets us very much make our own decisions. Yeah, I mean, my favorite filmmaker uh, from when I was in school, uh, documentarian, I should say, is Frederick Weissman. Oh, wow, and, yes. Yeah, and what Weissman does, what I learned from watching his films is don't judge, you yeah. know. Uh, let the film be the research. Uh, just be objective and let the audience uh, interpret as they wish. And that's what I was trying to do. And I don't know if you know or not, Thomas, but I'm I'm a first cousin of uh, Costa Gavras, uh, who's a very well-known uh, filmmaker uh, in Europe. And yeah. um, he also has that same sort of approach. You know, he did that film Missing and, um, and uh, Z, and he's a fantastic filmmaker. Um, so I don't know. I, I just like the idea of letting the audience uh, decide. The final thing I was going to ask you about this film is how much did your experience being immersed in the heavy metal scene inform your experience directing Wayne's World? Because one of the real things about Wayne's World that's so charming and has given that film such longevity is that I think it's a very affectionate portrayal of that kind of subculture that even in Australia we, we were able to relate to on a level. Yeah, it's funny because when we were when we were uh, doing well here after the release in the United States, the uh, publicity department at Paramount said to me, Penelope, we're going to release internationally, but please don't think that it's going to do well abroad because nobody's going to get these jokes. And they said, they're not going to understand what schwing means in Japan. <laughs> well, and they were wrong. Uh, we figured it out the, pretty quickly. I'm saying, yes. Well, it's because <laughs> it's a universal reference. Let's yeah. face it. But, um, you know, I mean, it, doing that film, uh, it was a big surprise. None of us ever expected that it was it was going to do well. And I think that um, my experience in the metal world helped to a degree. But, I mean, um, if you stop and think about it, Wayne and Garth were kind of posers. You know what I mean? They yeah. weren't real headbangers. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell anyone. <laughs> All right. Just between us. 
Just between us, yes. Now, the final film in the the, the, the Decline series, which uh, came out in the late 90s, which ended up focusing on the gutter punk movement. I'm, look, I'm really interested in how this film came came together because it feels like it was going to be a direct companion piece to the original film. It's looking at the nature mm-hmm. of punk in the late 90s. You adopt a similar visual style. You do that thing again where at the start you have a montage of the lead singers reading disclaimers to the audience. The interviews are done in a similar context. However, the focus of the film increasingly becomes on the young punk fans, many of whom are homeless, many of whom are addicts and come from abusive backgrounds. Was that the original intention or did the focus of the film change once you started speaking to these young people? Well, I must say that's an incredibly smart question that you asked, Thomas, because absolutely I did not have any idea where that film was going to take me. But once I became aware of the situation with that bunch of gutter punks, I couldn't ignore it. You know, I, it, it became more about, it became more about their lifestyle and their situation than it did about the music. And honestly, when I, when I saw them, I saw the, a, a, a big pack of kids walking down the street on Melrose here in, in Hollywood. And I, and I went, Oh my God, they look just like the kids from, from the original decline. I'm going to stop and talk to them. And then when I did, um, I thought, oh, this is great. We're just going to have another fun, you know, time with all these great fun people. But honestly, it was quite depressing after a while when I realized what their true situations were. They were living under bridges and in and alleys and and begging change off the street. You know, I wasn't expecting the third film to be so heartbreaking. I mean, it's a really moving, sad film, especially when you find out the fate of some of the kids at the end of the film. Have you stayed in touch with many of the other people in, in the doco and, or, or, or from any of the, the series for that matter? Well, as I mentioned, I have, I am in, uh, I believe I said this, uh, in touch with Eugene from The First Decline. Yes. Uh huh. And then, uh, honestly, though, my daughter Anna is more in touch with the, the kids in uh, part one and two. I'm the one that stayed in touch with the people in Decline 3. As a matter of fact, that's why I met my boyfriend was in Decline 3. 18 years we've been together now. He was homeless when I met him for 10 years. He was homeless. And then, you know, he moves into a multi-million dollar home. <laughs> and, it, and it's been 18 years. And, uh, you know, he's, he's the smartest guy I've ever met and he's, um, hardcore punk. And, uh, you know, those people in that film feel like my family. Um, Wymy just had to have a, a, a operation uh, on his heart and I sent him money for that. And, um, I, I do whatever I can for them, you know? That's so lovely to hear all that because it is heartbreaking watching this film. So it's great to know that things worked out for a lot of these these kids. And look, the film does feel like it, it's the more personal film for you. There's a lot more of you asking questions off camera. Um, I think you even include a bit in the film where you, you lose your temper a little bit with, with, with the kids. Is, is it a fair statement that you became far more personally attached to this film? Oh, absolutely. It's my favourite film I've ever done, including Wayne's World. I mean, it's... Decline three, uh, you know, that's what I want to be remembered for, honestly. And when when my daughter and I go to the various cities, we've been on a, a extensive uh, United States tour showing the Decline trilogy. I bring posters and I sign them, uh, and um, I autograph them, and I and I sell them for ten dollars. And in each city, we give the money f- to the homeless kids shelter. Oh wow! And 
Yeah. As the film states that you donated all the profits from the film to homeless shelters and, and, and uh, abuse centers too, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't made that. I've given, let's put it this way. <laughs> my, uh, my assistant pointed out, because she was doing the math, I didn't even think to do it, that uh, we gave more to charity than we actually made on the tour. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay, because I'm still getting checks from Wayne's World. Looking back at these films again, what was it like sort of re-watching them for the restoration? And have you given any thought to how much the films reflected the punk and metal scenes, or how much they even contributed to the way that we regard those scenes today? Well, you know what's interesting, and that's a that's a really cool question, but what's interesting is I did a movie called Suburbia right after I did the first Decline uh, film, and the suburbia is about uh, a bunch of uh, homeless punk rock kids that squat in a house uh, and become their own, you know, separate family. And um, so, so when you look at Decline Three, uh, it, it's almost the same film, only it's a documentary, uh, twenty-five or uh, thirty years later, whatever it was, you know. Uh, and it's like the kids. Um, had seen Decline One and Suburbia, and then later they did that. They lived that. And I don't know if I saw the future <laughs> or or if, um, you know, the kids saw the movie and did it. I don't know, but it, it's, it's very odd how similar those films are. Yeah. These films very much feel like an essential part of how we understand what punk was and what metal was in the 80s today. I mean, I think they've got amazing longevity. Having said that, how come it's taken so long for us to be able to see these films again? Well, another good question. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to admit that I think it's um, it was uh, fear uh, and not the band. Uh, uh, but <laughs> my, own, <laughs> my own fear of having uh, to face uh, the last 30 years of my life Mm. And the fact that that's gone and it's never coming back and the fear of having to do such an immense amount of work and putting all the extras together and everything, you know, uh, and and the restoration, as you mentioned, because the restoration was extremely gratifying because it looks like a thousand percent better than the original film. But it was also just really, really, really a lot of work. So. I think I instinctively knew that it was going to be a lot of work, and my my daughter really helped so much to do. I would have never done it without her because she's the one that said, Mom, you know, she's on all the social media networks and everything. She said, Mom, you don't understand. People really want to see this stuff, and you got to do it. So, so now I've done it, and I'm so happy it's over. <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine. Well, there's a lot of people all around the world who are thrilled as well, including myself. I just want to quickly ask, are you going to be restoring and re-releasing any more of your films, having had such a positive response from this one, especially some of those early shorts from the 60s and 70s? Yes, as a matter of fact, the Academy of Motion Pictures archive restored my shorts from um, my early days uh, there at UCLA. And there's a program, I think it's about 90 Minutes, of of the short films and then recently they've been showing uh a lot of my other films you know it's crazy because a lot of my films most of my films except for wayne's world and black sheep and little rascals but the rest of the films the ones that i really like uh, <laughs> uh, never got a release you know yeah. and now people are interested in them there's a film called dudes that's got john crier in it that mm -hmm. we showed at the Hammer Museum recently, and then the boys next door next door's got uh, Charlie Sheen in it. Trying to think of a, a program where I can do two and a half movies, but I haven't figured that out yet. 
<laughs> Look, I think it's fantastic that, that, that all these films are getting such uh, deserved re- recognition. These are films that are worth celebrating and they're, they're very part of how we understand contemporary culture today. So congratulations. I'm looking forward to seeing more of your films. Well, thank you. I was pretty sure that it was going to happen, but I thought I'd be dead uh, before it did. But actually, it's happening while I'm still alive, which uh, is pretty amazing. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> the Decline of Western Civilization films are currently screening at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. Please go to acme.net.au forward slash film for more details. I've been speaking with filmmaker Penelope Spheris here on Plato's Cave on Triple R. Penelope, thank you for making these films available once more and thank you for speaking with me today. Well, thank you so much and, I, and I, I'm so glad that um, you were able to help us out and get people to come down to the theatre. Thank you so much. <laughs> This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.